a lot of this activism can be humiliating. You do things like standing out in the street by yourself, shouting out to empty streets, or, or just asking a friend, or, you know, a, a friend for money, you know, a friend that, especially when you're not, uh, when you're struggling. I mean, I, and I'm going to get to another post. When you kind of disengage from the system, uh, you start to see things in a different way. You start to, in a nutshell, you know, you, you can't tolerate certain things and you just don't want to work for certain uh, platforms and companies. If the money's coming from Wall Street, you don't have anything to do with it and it really limits your options. Dun, 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 this sculpted narrative goes out to all the giants upon whose shoulders I stand. If I can see further, it is only because of their storied vision. Let me begin with... What's up? Once again, we're back. It's Trevor Fem here with another episode of Spread Love Free Market. And I'm glad you could join me today right here. Independence Day weekend. Not Independence Day, Independence Day. And what does that mean? That means depend on your community. They will be there for you when you need them, unlike big business or big tech or any of those guys. Anyway, thank you for joining. Last week, we had uh, the, the folks from The Collective here in our last episode, and uh, it was great. And I hope you guys get a chance to check them out, uh, meet up with them one-on-one. -on -one. It's the only way you're going to hear that 33-minute uh, uh, manifesto, which I loved. Uh, but last week, I didn't get a chance to go over the new format that I have been coming to enjoy over the past uh, few episodes. And I'm glad we are back. Back with the review of our social media postings and our look at my, our favorite podcast from around podcast land. And uh, we will be going over Tech Won't Save Us. And we will also be going through Capital Isn't. And then we'll try to get in a, a quick review of something that was shared about the Titan, the sinking of the Titan on uh, Pivot. Uh, Pivot uh, is a podcast that I also love. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll get around to that but uh, with the social media post alone I have a lot to say I'm going to try to keep it entertaining but um, if I feel like it's going too long then we can always push it to next week so why don't we get started so uh, let's let's start with uh, the social media posts you know that's how we like to get us all warmed up yeah so um yeah, here we go. So I posted uh, last week. Uh, let me open up the screen a little bit more. Uh, we are organizing with other activists, a group for activists who have rendered themselves dysfunctional within the system, who have continued to fight passionately for justice long after the summer of 2020. A lounge for activists. Or, as we put it, the Activist Lounge. It's an event that we had in 
Brooklyn when I was uh, my last year or last few months in Brooklyn, actually, we organized three or four activist lounges, uh, which was a, a really cool event. We did it on my rooftop in Brooklyn the last two or three, I'm losing track. Uh, we had one in McCarran Park, and we're bringing it back, back to Brooklyn, New York City. And it's going to be a safe space for activists to create, collaborate, and share. We want us to have a place where, and it actually, well, I was actually inspired uh, from the manifesto from the collective and some of the things he said about getting out there and screaming out when there's nobody listening. And he said, if the buildings, if the parks and the streets are empty, that means the buildings must be filled. And that really resonated with me and um, the collective, uh, both of them, well, Jesse specifically, I can relate. I, I, I really, from the moment that we kind of connected at McCarran, I could see that he was a free spirit and a deep thinker. And, and he vocalized that sometimes being a deep thinker and being vocal about it, he said it in the manifesto as well, it has consequences. He excluded himself from that uh, description, but I, I, I will take liberty to include him in that description because yes, it was frowned upon and, uh, and you felt it not only from him, but from others, you know, we have, uh, we, and I, I wasn't quiet about this. I let them know and we let them know the, the vocal ones and not only there, but anywhere, you know, when you are vocal, you tend to, um, people can look at you a certain, certain way, um, you know, I don't want to go into all of that, but the fact that there's somebody who is who can understand that journey and the struggle and uh, the challenges of being an activist and to still be an activist uh, three years after what happened with George Floyd. There was a time when everybody was out there, everybody was in the streets, everybody was doing things, and now, you know, it, it's... It can be really discouraging. Uh, so I wanted to create a space where we can not only have an, an affinity group where we can talk amongst ourselves about things that we can relate to best, but also a safe space to create. I mean, that manifesto of attention, uh, which you can get by finding Jesse or Domar or jalapeno, the dog, in the real world. You have to connect with them in the real world. But it's it was 33 minutes long, and you know it was a it's a creative risk, on the highest degree, to put together a piece of work three years in the making, 33 minutes long. It takes courage, and. This is what I admire about uh, Jesse and Delmar is that they didn't flinch. They just went full speed ahead to get their message out. And Jesse's a person, and we talk, and he shares with me that he he's based in uh, Newburgh, New York, and he's out on a bus stop every day just engaging folks talking to folks, meeting folks, spreading his word. 
and that's a true the true definition of an activist he's out there doing the work putting in the time being selfless for the community and i can absolutely relate to that but there aren't too many people there's a handful of people who i could have uh, have that affinity with where i did it i was out every well six days a week when i was in New York at 6.30 every day I would come out with my speakers at McCarran Park, the same park that Jesse was describing in a tension. And I would be out there screaming to those very same buildings by myself. And sometimes it would be pouring rain and I'll be out there screaming into a mic. And every now and then somebody would walk by and give me the nod and heads up. And that's all I needed. I know I connected with one person. But there aren't too many people who can relate to that experience. So I want to create a space where uh, we can. So uh, you, if you are in New York, if you are not in New York, if you are in Brooklyn on July 29th at the Living Plant Design Space, my good friend G, another person that's out there doing the work of activism, she just had a event, uh, stop, I think it was to stop gun violence in Bed-Stuy. She's always out there. She's donated her space, Living Plant Design in Brooklyn, Bushwick. Go to our website. You'll see the flyer. There's a flyer right there if you're uh, watching our video, the video version of this podcast. And RSVP, Space is Limited. And if you're not in Brooklyn, we will be uh, creating the virtual space as much as um, we are trying to get away from the virtual uh, world and bring everything more into the real world. I do, uh, I do think that there has to be still a connection there because if we want to bring people out of the virtual slumber, then we need a connection. We need a path, a bridge to get them back into the real world. And I will happily be that bridge. So, there you go. You're, you are invited to Activist Lounge, July 29th, 46 p.m. in Bushwick, Brooklyn, Living Plant Design. Head on over to spreadlovefreemarket.com. Get your RSVP, and we will see you there. Oh, and by the way, there will, yes, there will be free shopping, and there will be an open mic. Let's get to the postings. I was not, uh, I was uh, more of a... Uh, promotion than a posting a social media post that we had this week so i'm gonna read one that, another one that or one that we had this week we and it goes like this we have been given the assignment of mama nature of painful extractor the task painfully extract stolen dollars from the system and return it to the people and it kind of still goes with the theme of activism and recognizing and realizing that this is my role personally my role is to extract money from the trail of money that comes from wall street into the hands of our neighbors how do we get that back into the community and keep it in the community and that's not an easy task and um in recent days, I uh, posted, actually today, and I'm going to read what I posted, um, raising funds for this endeavor we have. And I posted that 
Uh, hello, I'm, I'm going to read it for you, and it starts, a message from Trev, that's me. Hello, neighbors. Every week we get more orders than the last, and every week we have to stop taking orders earlier than the last for lack of support. That means that there are people who are in need that will have to wait at least another week or submit to supporting themselves in an undignified or even dangerous way. I come to you on their behalf. I understand that no single contribution will close the wealth gap or eradicate poverty, but I am passionate about this platform's model for achieving some level of economic justice. However, that won't happen without your support. Once we get enough support, I know the sponsors will come. Until then, those who are able to give, please do whatever and whenever you can, even if it hurts a little, so that your neighbors don't have to hurt a lot. Thank you, your community's humble servant, Trev. That's the name I'm giving myself. I'm still meeting with my family every morning. Uh, they have their, their uh, scripture readings, and I'm not... Uh, I'm agnostic, more of a naturalist than anything else. But one of my cousins, she uses the term when she refers to us as Jesus's humble servants. Now, I really like when she says that. It just sounds so like you're working for something greater than self. Jesus is some hum, Jesus's humble servant. Uh, but since I'm not religious. And these meetings are great, by the way. If you guys could have only could only tune in, my relatives are hilarious. They will literally speak for two, three hours, and I'm just coming in. The last week, they've been doing it for three years, nonstop. They've gone through the Bible every every chapter, having these discussions, and it reminds me of my group in McCarran. Uh, but they're still going at it strong, and I finally was able to listen in in the last two, three weeks, and it is so entertaining, and um, I, uh, yeah, so one of the, 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 the one of the names that our cousin uh, uses to refer to us is Jesus' humble servant, and I decided, since I'm not religious, that I will use, I will borrow that term and call myself your community's humble servant, and this is uh, a message that um, I sent out there, and it, it pertains to what we were talking about before with activism and the painful extraction and asking people for money, and it is not easy. Uh, it is hard. It takes a long time to get up to speed. I've done it so much in my life, but still every single time to get up to speed especially is very difficult. You really have to kind of dip your toes into asking, getting the script right, making sure that it doesn't come off uh, too aggressive, um, that it has some flow to it, uh, that you are not doing it too much because you want to be effective at it. And uh, mo more importantly, humil uh, humil humbling yourself. It's, it's, it can be humiliating. And a lot of this activism can be humiliating. You do things like standing out in the street by yourself, shouting out to empty streets, or, or just asking a friend, or, you know, 
a friend for money, you know, a friend that, especially when you're not, uh, when you're struggling. I mean, I, and I'm going to get to another post. When you kind of disengage from the system, uh, you start to see things in a different way. You start to, in a nutshell, you know, you, you can't tolerate certain things and you just don't want to work for certain uh, platforms and companies. If the money's coming from Wall Street, you don't have anything to do with it and it really limits your options and it puts you in a place where you will, you will probably struggle more than if you were open to working anywhere or somebody that has more money, yeah, I'll be happy to work with them. No, your, your, your beliefs limit your options and to go to people with, uh, in that place and ask them for money, um, yeah, it's humbling. And you really have to double down on that. Like, I mean, founders in that evil tech world uh, do the same thing, but at least they uh, they they are given that label of 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 doing something ad admirable. You know, it's like, oh, we're trying to raise a billion a million dollars to get a billion dollar valuation, and we're going to talk to a venture capitalist and. Uh, they're going to whine and dine us or tell us to go home. But for them, that's that's a noble story. It's a noble warrior running through Silicon Valley to get their uh, their big investments. Uh, with us, it's, you know, I'm trying to get 25 bucks to feed uh, a family. And uh, it, it does uh, take courage, uh, but more than that, it takes humility. And I'm a pretty humble person. <laughs> Saying that is almost not humble, right? <laughs> but um, it's another thing I'm learning that sometimes you have to put yourself out, up there. You have to put yourself up on the stage. Uh, if it does the community good, even if you may be humble and you, uh, you, know, you don't feel comfortable if it's for the good of the community, do it. And I mean, even this this podcast, I'm here by myself talking for an hour because I'm doing it because it, it's going to, if it gets $25 more for this hour, if I could get one more uh, contributor, um, then who is it f for me to have my ideals so high and lofty that I want to be the humble, the humble person that won't, go and fight for uh, what I believe in. Anyway, I'm all over the place with, on a tangent. But um, getting back to the point that it is a painful extraction to ask for money. And this is uh, what I meant by that post. So why don't we move on? Well, this is going to be a recurring theme. So, yeah. All right. So. I'm going to run through this. I don't want to be here too long. All right, so I'm going to run through the rest of these pretty quickly. Um, and this goes to something I just spoke about. And I start this posting, and it goes, How do I know if I am circulating tainted currency? Here is a thought experiment. Close your eyes. Ask yourself, where is the source of my wealth, salary, donations, etc., coming from? If the trail leads to Wall Street, 
by reasonable degrees of separation, let's say six, because uh, six has a ring to it, and then you are probably circulating tainted currency. And that's pretty much self-explanatory. Uh, maybe I'll stress and add in there, uh, uh, founders. Um, if you are there, uh, if they're your money, either the money that's, uh, that's supporting your business or money that's generating your income, if it's coming from Wall Street, then it's most likely tainted currency. And what do you do with that tainted currency? You take it and you give it to a community-based operation that's not connected to Wall Street. And a lot of donors and ph uh, philanthropists, they are, they're like two degrees of separation, a lot of them, from uh, Wall Street. So this is why we rail against philanthropy, the philanthropic industrial complex. But we'll probably, I think we have something dealing with that as well. So let's move on. Um, Independency Day. Independency Day. July 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, etc., etc. So July 5th, we start Independency Day, and that's a day where we depend on community. And then July 5th just happens to be my birthday. Um, I'm always a person. I'm that person in the family that reminds everybody of everybody else's birthday. Who's going to remind everybody else of my birthday? Nobody. So what I decided to do is to take July 5th and just uh, make it a useful day for the community. So Independence Day is a day when we reach out to the community, let them know there's nothing wrong with being dependent on your neighbor. Reach out to your neighbor when you need help and invite them and let them know that you are there for them. Uh, that also takes courage. I don't know if I could do all of this at once, but it's Independence Day. I started it. I think I better do some sort of action if it's not with my... Uh, direct neighbors, then I reach out to somebody that's uh, not uh, physically a neighbor, but uh, in terms of a, a network is a neighbor. So anyway, so there you go. Independency Day, July 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, and so on and so forth. Okay, what we got next? Ah, here's one. The thing about grants. It is wealth extracted from community. It's pennies on that dollar given back to the community. It's a competition with a majority of loser applicants who would have been better off if the wealth wasn't stolen in the first place. It gives cover and eases the guilt of the extractors who want to be celebrated for doing good. And I end that posting. And yeah, I mean, that's self-explanatory as well. As I said, the philanthropic industrial complex, it does more harm than good. You're basically given these billionaires cover uh, to say that, oh, yeah, we gave to such and such. And, and they, they try to, a lot of them do it anonymously, but only people that it's anonymous to are the people who will actually be most offended if they found out who, where the money was coming from. So, of course, their friends know the billionaires and go to their yacht clubs and their golf clubs and... Everybody knows that they're donating, and um, and they feel they walk around. Oh, yeah, you know, I feel good about myself. I gave uh, one million dollars to this college and one million dollars to this uh, art foundation, and blah blah blah. And and we perpetuate the harm that's being done, uh, the harm that's they're exploiting the workforce, exploiting resources, and harming the planet. Yet, if they give away a minimal which is a non-impactful a non uh, 
uh, amount of money, then, you know, we give them a pass. And I'm saying that, no. Go back to that post with tainted money, you know, do some research, see if you got six degrees of separation from Wall Street. If you do, well, then boycott with your dollars. And we have to embrace the power of community. Once the the consumers, consumer activism, if we can uh, be more conscious about where we spend, spend locally, then these billionaires, and not even take notice, we want to shift the, 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 the balance of power to community. So anyway, uh, you know, every single one of these, I could go off on a rant, so I really have to edit myself. All right, so what we, what we got next? If corporations are so afraid of union, aha, uh -huh, here we go. Just talking about this. I, edit, I edited well in my slides. So I'll start again. If corporations are so afraid of a union of workers who they can partially control, imagine the fear when a union of shoppers finally become self-aware to shop local and mass. A body who they can't control. AI ain't got nothing on that future. Know your value. Yeah, just said it. Yeah, if we as shoppers became aware of our power, imagine the future that we could shape. And it was, who said it? Abraham Lincoln and some other guy said that the best way to predict the future is to shape it, something along that, those lines. So know your value. And again, I won't dwell on that. Let's move on to the next one because I've spent two slides on that tangent. Okay, next one. Stop thinking you're better than our houseless neighbors. They're not slaves. They, they are not the slaves to the system. Know their value. And that speaks to this idea that we, if you are employed and housed and you have the trappings of success, that those who don't have the trappings are somehow less than or you look down on or feel sorry for them. Well, uh, I've got news for you that the one that you should feel sorry for is yourself. Because in many instances, and this is in general, not in every single instance, but I at least like to believe that these individuals who we deem to be uh, quote unquote uh, down and out or failures, that they have a, a degree of freedom of of understanding, of knowing the trappings, what the trappings of success really do to your soul. And you reach a level of understanding where when you could let go of that world and those trappings, then you have a level of understanding and a, and a way of viewing the world where you won't even have these thoughts that someone is less than or that you have to, you know. So it's some, it's, and I, I brought this up because it, f it feels like that's where 
this journey of enlightenment that I am on, uh, it's taken me somewhere in that direction. I don't know if I'm, uh, I have the courage to go all the way there, part of the way there, create a new there, but I know I don't want to go back to this uh, place of being trapped and having uh, these uh, th these dependencies on the, the systematic, uh, the support system that allows us to feel better about ourselves, but really to be enslaved. Um, yeah, let me not go much uh, too much into that. Um, let me just move on to the next one. Flipping the first letter, me to we. So you take the M, you flip it. And that's also the journey that uh, we are on. Uh, you take the M, you turn it upside down, and you go from thinking about self to thinking about uh, the community. And that's flipping the first letter, me to we. Okay, so what we got next? All right, so here we go. You begin to fully appreciate the power of the systems of oppression when you begin to shed its trappings. This message has been brought to you by iPhone. That's a little ironic statement there. Um, basically, um, appreciating and realizing the trappings of success and of this modern world, while at the same time uh, realizing that through the trappings of the modern world. An ironic statement. So, next, next. So, this one is three lines. First one, double down on commonalities. Second one, allow the differences. And the third one, fight the injustice. And it's a, a model that I'm following only over the past couple of weeks. It's trying it out, see how it works in the real world. And basically, if you find something in common, uh, lean into that. If you find some, a neighbor that you have something in common, for example, with our activist lounge, we have, I find other activists, double down, down on that, uh, lean into it, uh, collaborate, support, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, allow the differences. So if people uh, that you don't agree with are left, progressive versus a right conservative, acknowledge and allow it. You know, if somebody wants to do their own thing and it doesn't affect you, you know, why should you have a problem with that? And I think that's a big issue we have in this country. Uh, live and let live. If there is uh, differences that hurt others, then fight against it. So see how this works. Double down on the com commonalities. Allow the differences. Fight the injustice. Uh, all right. Oh, that was it. Okay. We got through them all. It was wonderful. Make sure you follow us, Spread Love FM on Instagram, and you can get a preview of the tweets for the next tweets. <laughs> you can get a preview of the postings for the next podcast at Spread Love FM. So let's move on to our podcast review segments, and we have three of them this week. And the first one is Capital Isn't. Why America's Poor Remain Poor with Pulitzer Prize winning author Matthew Desmond. 
But before we go into that, I want to talk about the public note. Public note right here, something we made for all of our sponsors. It's part Craigslist ad, part post-it note. These go into the bags of every one of our free orders into the bag. And we have a message inside. Uh, supporting the message of our sponsors. This one says, for example, I am selling handmade jewelry. And the other side has a section where you could just write in, write in your own note. Or in the back, I am teaching podcasting. So it's basically non-virtual messaging. Uh, we are asking our sponsors to go uh, do spread love freemarket.com you can sponsor and once you sponsor you can post a note that we will hand off in a bag uh, these notes are much more effective than a virtual uh, ad because people are holding them people uh, just bought a product so they are more uh, uh, open to reading especially something that's handmade that seems DIY we have many messages and the community gets to participate you know you are supporting a local vendor so head on over to spread love freemarket.com you could start with as little as a $25 contribution and create your own public note that will be passed out into all in all of our free order bags so there you go all right now what we got next okay so we're going capital isn't uh, by Luigi Zingales and Bethany McLean are the hosts of this podcast that I've been listening to pretty regularly. Last week, we had a, a clips from a Congress senator, um, and he was speaking on um, social services, and he was talking about how we've become too dependent on these social services and how we should cut them down because the wealth gap hasn't really grown it's been pretty steady because we haven't accounted for the uh, welfare payments that have uh, that have added to the wealth of the poor uh, but his solution was to stop welfare payments so that people would get off get off their couch and get back to work uh, so this week they had part two and uh, the Pulitzer Prize winning author Matthew Desmond had his uh, kind of re retort to that argument. And um, I'll start by playing a clip. So let me cue it up. Let me find this clip. And here we go. Haven't accomplished what they should have, given that they haven't gotten more Americans to be able to make to make more money. Now he's got a very different set of policy prescriptions than you do. His policy prescriptions are essentially get rid of transfer payments, so people have to go have to go earn money. But what do you say about just this broad notion that you guys actually do agree that transfer payments haven't accomplished what they should? Well, I think for those of us that are seeking to end poverty, it's a challenge and it's a paradox, and I don't think we can run away from it. Actually or you know, adjust the inflation measure in a way that tells a different story. I think we really need to look hard on it. You know, if you just look at normal hardship measures, it's really troubling. You know, eviction filings are up 22% over the last 20 years. The uh, number of families within food pantries up 19%. Number of homeless school kids, you know, up 74% since the Great Recession. Real troubling, hard measures that's, that's really uh, difficult to dismiss. And so I think that this book is asking for more, not less. It has a recognition of the power and importance and just 
life-saving benefits of many of these programs. I mean, I've been with families when they receive a housing voucher and they just like fall to their knees and weep, you know, because they know that it's a lifesaver. And the evidence of what those families do when they finally receive that voucher after years and years on the waiting list is, is moving to me. They take it to the grocery store, you know, they buy more food, their kids become less anemic. And so arguments about taking away those programs or doing less for those families are are pretty insensitive and out of touch and sometimes even cruel, I think. But I also think we have to recognize that we don't just need more of the same. You know, we need different policies, policies that disrupt poverty, and especially policies that attack exploitation in the financial and, and housing markets. So yeah, I I uh, like that retort. It was pretty much what you know I believed when I heard uh, the Senator Phil Graham. I can't remember if it's Phil Graham. I think it's Phil Graham when, when he said, uh, when he made his comments, and I was, uh, you know, I was, I was pissed off. I was angry when I heard it. But this uh, retort, yeah, it, it's it was a good it was a good retort um, that you have to be a little bit more compa- a little bit a lot more compassionate uh, that you have to find. But he does identify. He does state that you do have to find another way that uh, the uh, the solution uh, that's currently available is not uh, perfect by any means. Uh, so yeah, I just want to play that to start, but he has a couple of other clips that I want to play that I will go uh, I'll have more commentary to add. Uh, so here we go. One of the arguments of the book is about exploitation, right? And the housing crisis. And one of the things that I was, was really mind-opening to me you know, I was living in a mobile home park in Milwaukee and the landlord let me see his, his rent books. And, you know, so I could calculate his bottom line. And I learned that, you know, the landlord that I was renting from, which was a really poor mobile home park in the fourth poor city in the country at the time, he was making over $400,000 a year after expenses. And so that set him like in a completely different life than, than many of his tenants who are on disability or working minimum wage. And that got me thinking like how, unique is that. And we actually have data for that. It's called the Rental Housing Finance Survey. And it's a, it's a nationwide survey of landlords. It's not perfect, but it's pretty good. And if you look at that data, you learn that landlords in poor neighborhoods have much higher margins than landlords in middle middle class neighborhoods. They don't make just more, they make double often. And so the arguments about immigration and increased housing cost might not come down to supply and demand dynamics, they might come down to plain old exploitation dynamics, where when you have a captive tenant group that doesn't have a lot of choice, you know, then you can uh, charge them more for less. Now, the reason I played this is because it gets to a question that I have been asking. If we go back a few episodes, uh, we covered the topic of Karl Marx and the surplus and the exploitation and the question that I had in a recent conversation with a neighbor was, what does this exploitation look like? And I couldn't, I don't know, you know, it's, it's a journey I am on now. So how do you go from supply and demand, the invisible hand of, of um, John Adams, how does that turn into exploitation uh, why isn't the wealth of a billionaire justified if he comes up with a great idea? 
and I couldn't quite verbalize that. And this was kind of a first look and, and evidence of one way that this can happen. And the example used here is housing and how those of us with less power are exploited more because we have less choices. And um, that was, yeah, that's one exp explanation that the landlords in neighborhoods where uh, the that are in neighborhoods that are have higher poverty rates that they make twice as much than the landlords in neighborhoods that are middle class or upper class that says something and touches on something that happens and he I think he speaks about this uh, later on in the episode I may not have the clip or oh, it might be I think it's actually in the, the next podcast from Tech Won't Save Us but the idea that those of us with less power are exploited, I think it can be translated from renters to workers. So you have your Uber driver who has to drive to feed his family. He doesn't have options. He doesn't have stocks. He doesn't have uh, family wealth. He doesn't have property. So the options are less for him. So you could say that you have to drive at less for less because you don't have another option, another place to go to. And the exploitation of workers is probably, that's probably the form, uh, one of the more common forms it takes. Uh, we spoke about, when we were speaking about Marx, uh, and we were speaking about the, the, the employee, years uh, minimizing cost and maximizing profits and uh, the invisible hand in that case is just doing what it does which is how can we maximize shareholder value and you do it with people who don't have the power and in the end it leads to uh, uh, an imbalance of, of wealth of earnings of pay so yeah, I just want to play that to make that point. So uh, we have uh, another clip that I'd like to share with you. I was in London a few months ago and you go to the shops and the shops have stickers on the windows, some of them. And they say, you know, we this shop pays a living wage, you know? And so I'd, I'd go into the shops and I was like, tell me about these stickers. And, you know, there was a whole, there was a whole movement and branding behind it. I think that's that works. And I think that, you know, we've got a lot of stickers on our shops these days, but often they don't have anything to do with how much the worker's getting paid. And so I think that consumer activism along these lines and really taking a hard look at what we're buying and what we're invested in could, with enough people, make a dent and, and start changing the political will around, you know, the perpetuation of poverty. That was, that it was very interesting because it reinforced the uh, posting that I read to you earlier from this week about, and I read it again, that I uh, posted on our Instagram, Spread Love FM, and it read, if corporations are so afraid of a union of workers who they can partially control, imagine the fear when a union of shoppers finally becomes self-aware to shop local en masse, a body who they can't control. AI ain't got nothing on that future. 
know your value. And yeah, I was like, wow, I posted that a couple of days before hearing this podcast and there it is expressed that this, and I, I mean, I guess I heard the word, the term consumer activism, but it wasn't at the top of mind and I haven't heard it much, maybe once or twice in my life before. So it wasn't something that I thought about at the time I made that posting, but that's the term consumer activism. And I use it at the top of the show because it's now at the top of my mind. And yes, it happens. And it's, it was great to hear that. Yes, consumers can get together and boycotting, I guess, is another term that I've heard more often, but I didn't make quite make the tie. Uh, I guess because in at least in our country, boycotting is not really effective in a way that I'm imagining it, where there is a like a union of shoppers. And I think even in this in this example that he is using for the uh, European model, it is more informal. Uh, more of a trend. Uh, what I am talking about is more of a coalition, an uh, organized coalition of shoppers who vote with their dollars in the same way that you have the AFL, the AFL-CIO, whatever the guilds are, who meet and talk about where, what they want to do and are organized. And that's what we are trying, that's the world we are trying to, in, that's the world not trying, it's the world we envision at Spread Love Free Market. How do we collectively uh, bargain, use our power, our time, uh, take our attention away from big tech and redirect it towards uh, platforms like Spread Love Free Market, where now we are focusing, moving our attention to the free products that you find on our platform and with enough eyeballs and people shopping there. Now the local businesses can connect with the public note, for example. I am teaching podcasting. Our eyeballs are here. You shop, pick up your bag. Oh, bam, look what I found, a local business to support. As opposed to going to Facebook and having them charge you X amount of dollars and that money going to Wall Street. Now that goes to investing in groceries, supporting the community. That's what we are talking about when we envision a coalition of organized consumers. And that's what we are trying to do here. So it was so good to hear that. Capital isn't. Thank you for sharing that. And we are creating that world for the people for the community and i am the community's humble servant there you go so let's have another clip the final one from capital isn't and uh, let's see what we got here you know one thing that struck me is that i think he was really honest in saying that his constant contact with people who are poor force him to be intellectually honest on that front and, and I think that we don't think about that enough. At the end of the day, we want to be able to be accountable to the people we deal with. And if we deal with a very limited fraction of the world, we are only accountable to that fraction of the world. So if you are a Supreme Court justice and you always go on vacation with rich people, uh, you <laughs> are we only talking about a particular Supreme Court justice, Luigi? <laughs> Actually, I, I forgot which one because it seems that all of them. Oh, are, right. 
<laughs> Maybe that's true. No, I think I think that's so true, and it does point to his incredibly poignant and and truthful observation at the end of our conversation with him. Really does point to another reason why the increased segregation and isolationism in American life is so is so very dangerous. Because if you don't come in contact with people who aren't like you, then you 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 really do you lose touch. So that last clip was one that uh, expressed uh, the idea that you do have to be there on the ground, uh, boots on the ground with the people, knowing that sometimes these, uh, uh, these solutions that are, uh, in, in theory, may sound good, or may make sense, that you won't know until you actually not well i mean this is not precisely what he was saying but i'll I'll get to the exact point but you won't know until you have your boots on the ground and you are talking to the people and the point that they were saying was that uh, when you are talking to the people and when these people are part of your community that you now to say that we want to take away but if you're saying you want to take away their transfers but you don't know somebody who that will affect personally, you're not in that world, then you don't have the full picture. And that's the impression I had from listening to the, uh, the previous guest on last week's show, which we played here two weeks ago, two episodes ago, uh, was that he seemed out of touch. And this is a complaint I have with many people who have these policies that they are pushing that really mimic uh, the trickle-down thinking, corporate thinking, the machine thinking, exploitive. And for me, that's too much of a disconnect to, to work. In the end, it becomes unsustainable. Uh, this guest identifies that correctly. Uh, to the credit of Capital Isn't, that uh, well, I had a bit of a complaint that they didn't really push back hard enough last week, but they knew what they were doing. They had the right guest, the Pulitzer Prize uh, winning guest, who uh, came with a retort that I think was really satisfactory, and uh, I appreciate that. So uh, listen to Capital Isn't. We will have the link in the show notes. And uh, let's move on to our next podcast. And this next podcast is uh, Tech Won't Save Us. Uh, Tech Won't Save Us with Paris Marks. And it's another one that I listen to all the time. It's actually one of my favorites because they're out there fighting the big tech monster, the evil AI uh, uh platforms and uh this episode was really good uh it was with molly crabapple who is an artist and the topic here was why ai is a threat to artists so let's listen in and uh yeah i'll I'll be back in a second but i was revolted at the idea that we just had to accept this that this was inevitable that you know this is a genie that you can't put back in the bottle you know that if you try to fight this that you're like a horse and buggy maker and i was like this is so 
ridiculous. This is so untrue. Nothing that humans do is inevitable in this world. Nothing that companies do is inevitable. We don't have to use companies' products. Corporations can be constrained by politics, uh, by power, and by protest. And me and Marissa, we had a panel that we had sold to Perugia where I was going to spend it all just talking about my own work. And I was like, I don't want to just talk about my artwork. I want to talk about this. I want to talk about this giant elephant in the room here because no one that I saw was actually directly challenging this false narrative of inevitability. And so I gave a speech and I showed how Dolly was trained on my work. Like literally, if you go into Dolly and you put scene from Syria drawn by Molly Crabapple, you will get kind of stupid knockoffs of my work, but clear knockoffs, like clear ripoffs that someone who wasn't paying that much attention might even think was my work. And you can be prompted by my name, right? I showed that. I showed the images of mine that were in the Lion 5B data set, which was used to train stable diffusion. And I spoke about the intense just disgustingness and immorality of these billion-dollar corporations in Silicon Valley claiming the divine right to steal the work of working-class artists, the work that we like spent our whole lives learning how to do, and just use it as fodder so that their machines can shit out bad replicas of what we do. So, yeah, I, I really uh, loved this episode. The... Again, AI, I haven't gone on any AI platform yet. I'm really, you know, maybe I should, but um, I just don't want to be a part of that. I really want to build a, a, a bridge to a real world platform. Uh, but I, I do tune in and uh, Tech Won't Save Us is one of the better podcasts to keep me up to date. But I didn't know that this was was so invasive. Uh, this AI was it seems to be. It seems like it's already taken away work. Uh, if you listen to the podcast, I'll, we will have the link in our show notes. It talks about some of these um, uh, media uh, platforms that are already using AI artwork uh, to create to complement their stories. And basically, the long-term effect or the short-term effect or the effect that's happening right now is workers who used to draw these illustrations will now do touch-up work on these illustrations. They will fire them. Oh, we've got an AI robot now that can do the same work that you did and then rehire them at much, 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 much less and ask them to work on the project that the AI uh, robots uh, created. And the bad thing about that, which you probably uh, picked up on in the soundbite, is that they are now they are actually stealing the work from these very artists. Um, they go into the, uh, the, 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 the internets and they scrape the internets of all of their work and it becomes this monstrous... Frankenstein creation of bad parts, million teeth monsters, as Molly put it. And it's just exploitative to the nth degree. And I remember a few years back, I had made a posting that 
what happens to uh, the exploitation that happens to uh, the blue collar or the lower wage workers or like the delivery guys, blah, blah, blah. The, I think it was with cars, the taxis. I was making this this uh, comparison, this, this point where at the time they were talking about how cars are going to replace taxi drivers. My dad was a driver for 38 years. Uber really dealt us a really bad blow. And I was making the point, yes, it'll be my dad today, but tomorrow it'll be you, the graphic designer. It, re it will replace all of us. And not knowing that this would happen so fast. So I made this point maybe four, three, four years ago. And the post is probably somewhere in uh, social media world out there. But um, yeah, here it is. There we go. Uh, this is why injustice for one of us means injustice for all of us. And I am paraphrasing the quote uh, from uh, one of our civil rights leaders. I think that was actually uh, Dr. King. Anyway, let's have another uh, play at it. Tech won't save us. I, like everyone else who challenges this stuff, have been yelled at a lot and called a stupid Luddite. This is the standard term for anyone who thinks that, I don't know, it's a poor idea to have AI-powered machine guns or whatever. Yeah, I, I think many listeners of this podcast will be familiar with uh, being kind of criticized in that way. <laughs> so I decide, I'm like, why don't I brush up and remind myself, right, of the history of the Luddites to see what was going on. And what I found was that they were, like me, skilled tradesmen with a lot of autonomy who had seen that, you know, destroyed by giant mechanical looms that, um, you know, were um, powering the satanic mills of Manchester and uh, being operated by people who were making pennies and who were working in these like factories where they were like crushing their fingers and where their kids were being crushed under things all the time. And they didn't like it. And they decided to protest against it. And one tactic of protest, a very legitimate and time honored tactic of protest was to smash the machines. That was the first thing I learned. So it was a smart and accurate labor critique. The second thing that I learned was I learned that the Luddites were not stopped because of the inevitability of technological progress. The Luddites were not stopped because technology moves forward and they were in the past. No, they were stopped because England sent an army that basically occupied the territories they were involved in and killed them all. That's why they were or shipped them to Australia as prisoners. That's why they were stopped. They were stopped because of state violence. I think that this is a really, really important thing for people to know that it's not that, you know, the techno technological progress is inevitable. It's that technological progress is backed by power and often by violence. And that's why it's adopted, something that's forced on people. So, yeah, there we go. The, um, I actually wanted to bring that up uh, for uh, uh, one, of, one of these reasons. And uh, Molly made a great point about the narrative of ine inevitability. And I mean, I... I I love everything she was saying. She's fierce. Uh, she's an activist. Uh, she is well informed, and this I, this narrative in, of inev inevit inevitability inevitability um, is doesn't have to be that narrative. We can change that narrative, and it's kind of the choice. It's part of the reason why I. T choose at least right now not to use AI. I haven't gone to chat 
GPT or whatever whatever platform there is uh, because I'm not buying into that. It's going to be, in, in my opinion, it's going to be another tool. The same thing happened with me as a videographer uh, when we were shooting with the bigger cameras and then the phones that I'm shooting on right now came uh, uh, became a major player and, you know, our rates went down and we were replaced to a degree by the uh, shooter in the street. It became more democratic. Uh, so I think it'll be a tool in that way. I don't think this idea of AI taking over, uh, you know, being the 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 end of human civilization, I'm the, I don't buy into that. I think, again, it's all hype, and I think she's touching on that in a way. Uh, what I do think is that technology in general will be the demise of us all. Uh, we are killing the planet. We are uh, increasing the, the, the wealth uh, gap, and... This is where, and, and this idea, uh, the, one of the things that really kind of amused me is this, this term, this, this term, the Luddites. It amuses me because it's a term my father used when we were young. I never really gave it much thought, but I did ask him a few times, what does that mean? And he would tell me, uh, people who don't use technology, and this is going back in the 80s and 90s, I think. And um, to hear that this has been, uh, this is the applicable to what's happening now in such a profound way is actually a bit ironic because, you know, what happened with Uber and my dad um, and what's happening with, uh, with Mali and her art uh, is parallel. And it's something that my father, he's always, he used the word because he described himself as a Luddite. He was uh, then uh, replaced, not replaced, but his, uh, in a, to make a long story short, he had a medallion that he owned for 38 years. Uh, the year he decided to retire and was relying on that medallion to carry him to his retirement. Uh, Uber basically crashed the price of the New York City medallion. And there were other factors as well, inflated, uh, uh, overinflated uh, values, uh, blah, 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 blah. I don't want to go into all of that. But in essence, the technology that is Uber, uh, right at the time when he was planning for his retirement, it caused his the value of his medallion to become, in essence, worthless. And um, that's technology. That's what it does. And, and medallions were there for a reason. It was there to regulate the number of drivers in the street so that we are not competing. We are not. Well, I was a driver as well, too. That's why I guess we say we. I was not a taxi driver. I was a chauffeur, a delivery driver, blah, blah, blah. But if there are too many uh, drivers in the street, uh, the value of the uh, rates will go down, uh, and then you will have a, a in, unstable market where drivers are out there not knowing how much they get paid, working, driving around for hours, and making uh, less than minimum wage. This is why the medallions were there. Uber said, oh, we don't need, need medallions. We're democratizing meda the taxi services. And in the end, after all the uh, taxis were, after that industry was ruined, then they lowered the rates. They started to exploit the Uber drivers as well. And this is what big tech does. Anyway, I went to this tangent, but it, was, it is relevant. And it is uh, part of the reason why I am fighting against exploitation, injustice, etc. Anyway, that's it for uh, Tech Won't Save Us. Check it out. We'll put the show... 
um, link in our show notes. And uh, we have one more clip for you. Um, it's a story from Pivot with Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway. And this is a clip uh, uh, that refers to the big news story last week. Tragic story about the Titan, uh, the submersible that went to visit the Titanic. And I'll play the clip and then I'll chime in afterwards. And that's one short clip uh, where we'll be wrapping it up soon. So um, here we go. But I think there's a lot of evidence that space travel is still very uh, dangerous. It's got a, a 2% mortality rate. Base jumping has something like a point. You would be stupid to opt for space travel over, over base, base jumping. jumping. Mm -hmm. That's how dangerous this is. And when you don't have regulation, and the reason that Titan was dropped from a Canadian vessel in international waters, there was no regulation. Mm -hmm. And what we're finding out is that regulation matters. And it, I'm conflicted because I think people should have the right to kill themselves. And, mm. But at the same time, if it's going to potentially cost taxpayers tens or hundreds of millions of dollars, then regulation should play a role here. And that is, yeah. we just don't need, we, we don't want to have to come save your dumb rich ass. This also brings up a lot of philosophical questions, and that is the amount of coverage this has received versus the migrants who die trying to get across these bodies of water in much less romantic yeah. you know, fashion. So mm -hmm. uh, uh, this whole thing, and then uh, a bunch of people warning about the physics of it. I think a lot of people are rethinking, is this why I'm rich? Mm -hmm. if, if you're the husband of a woman, if you're a, a private equity billionaire, and mm -hmm. as a gift, you gave your 22-year-old your daughter mm -hmm. a $400,000 ticket on Virgin Galactic. I mean, I mean, they've already had someone die. They had a test pilot die. That person yeah, yeah, probably had a wife and kids. Right. I think when one I of the things is that this guy went down, and obviously a lot of people, including James Cameron, who's been a very active in the submersible and deep sea diving, they all knew it was a problem. This this carbon fiber hull. I know more about carbon fiber hulls, but they all were like this. We had warned them and warned them and warned them again. And this guy was like, you know, I'm going to be the Elon of submersibles. I'm going to make it cheaper. And they were like, there's no way physics can make it cheaper. Well, it's, just, it's a manifestation of this move fast and break things. And I yeah. have total disdain for regulation. And the individual, yeah. the CEO of the company is on record as saying the reason why he doesn't have Navy commanders captioning these vessels is he said, literally, 55-year-old white guys are not innovative. Yeah. So he didn't want, he didn't want people who are trained yeah. in, the, who actually have spent time in, mm -hmm. you know, underwater thousands of feet to command these vessels. Mm -hmm. This is just a manifestation of this arrogance. I mean, and quite frankly, when I heard about this, Kara, I was a little bit relieved when I found out it was a massive implosion because mm -hmm. I had, I don't know if you have this, sometimes I get fixated yeah. on something and it bothers yeah. me and I have trouble sleeping. Yeah, I'm sitting down there while you were sleeping. hundred. That's what I did. Percent. So, so yeah, that's the last clip. And that last comment that they made is the one of the two points that i want to make here is me too i was right there with them i couldn't sleep it was anxiety inducing i was having nightmares almost it, the fact that it imploded as tragic as it was was a, a relief in that they didn't suffer I, with my morning group, we spoke about that. I wasn't the only one having anxiety. Um, my, my, the, 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 uh, the folks in that group were also having anxiety. Um, it was horrible. Uh, my brother, the same thing. He, he was sharing the same, like, just 
being there with them. And that was, to me, the worst way that they could have gone. Imagine being submersed in darkness in a a, a 11-foot tube uh, running out of air. And um, yeah, so in a way, it was um, uh, it was a relief that it happened quickly. Uh, the second point about uh, billionaires uh, having so much money that they don't know what to do with it is another point that we spoke about in the morning group, and this idea that um, and it goes. I think it goes to this. Uh, we spoke about it a few episodes back about um, about disassociation. What was the word that I used? Um, I, I can't remember alienation alienation uh with the uh employers and the employees and uh surplus and exploitation alienation and in this case it felt like they have so much money it's money that does not have the same value uh to them so let's you know we've ran out of things to do we've gone to space we've climbed mountains uh, let's let's go underwater and these trips that have no point except to to uh, stimulate to excite to make them feel like we are doing something adrenaline rush and if you're going to take two hundred thousand dollars for your adrenaline rush uh, money that was exploited from the community imagine what that two hundred thousand dollars would do for the community imagine the small businesses that are not started the 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 bills that are not played the bills that are not paid it's just a a waste of money so yeah check it out pivot hosted by Kara swisher and scott galloway uh you can find the link in our show notes and uh uh yeah so that's it for this week in terms of our social media posts. So we're going to wrap it up right now. So head on over to the show notes. Uh, you'll see a link if you need help with your podcast, audio or video podcasting. I have 18 years of editing experience, millions of video downloads. So that's one. The next one is we have our Sunday market as usual at Spring Hill Plant Expo community garden and workshop this Sunday, 11 a.m. till noon at the Spring Hill SDA Church. Uh, we are actually, this week, we'll be, we will be located inside of the trailers, uh, at least for one week. Uh, one of the members of the uh, church invited us in for the next week to see how that goes. So, Plant Expo, Sunday at uh, 11 o'clock till noon. And uh, what else we got? Uh, yeah, that's it. There we go. That's it. Oh, we have our uh, plants for sale on the website. Uh, we have our uh, hydrangeas for sale. And then we have the free plants, of course. And we have the free shop, everything free, free groceries. So head on over to spreadlovefreemarket.com. And that's it for this week. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. We will uh, see you again next week. Uh, tune in to Spread Love FM on Instagram. Get a preview of our post and RSVP for the Activist Lounge coming to you July 29th. And hopefully we will see you there as well. So until next time, my name is Trevor Femme. Thanks again for joining us and we'll see you next time. Cynicism is a coping mechanism. The comedy is the obvious part. It's a comedy because it must be. Cynical humor is far-reaching because of the simple idea that life must be a joke. 
But if life is not a comedy, then it must be a tragedy. And if life is a tragedy, I'm only just beginning to accept it. A real tragedy. Not what's on TV.